Please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we are continuing our series of studies on the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are actually given there in Galatians chapter 5, and you have that passage in your bulletin. But we're going to focus this morning on patience as a fruit of the Spirit, and the passage we'll be digging into is in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. I'll read verses 7 through 11. This is God's holy, inerrant, and powerful word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I read an article in USA Today just a couple weeks ago that began with this ominous sentence. Customers spent 20 seconds more time on average waiting for food in a fast food drive-thru in 2019. 20 seconds more on average. It went on to list the averages for some of our favorite fast food restaurants. Actually, to take it as a whole, first of all, as a whole, 255 seconds is the average for all drive through restaurants. 255 seconds, which, if you do the math, comes out to about four and a half minutes. But when they listed out the best to the worst among fast food restaurants, the fastest in the drive through was Dunkin' <laughs> Dunkin Donuts. Three and a half minutes for Dunkin'. The slowest, now this might break some hearts here, the slowest drive through among fast food restaurants is Chick-fil-A. <laughs> that may be true. We have an apologist for Chick-fil-A here. <laughs> the food is better, and it's better to wait for what is good. Five and a half minutes, though. Five and a half minutes to wait for your lunch at Chick-fil-A. Of course, I read the whole article, read all the statistics, and said to myself, well, there's five minutes of my life that I'll never get back again. <laughs> but isn't that the epitome of a first world problem? We have to wait 20 seconds more this year to get our fast food. 20 seconds more. You know, it's just an illustration that we live in a society that is addicted to instant gratification. Things are so easy. We click on a link, we push a button, and it's there. I mean, think about it. Could you have imagined, if you've been around this long, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that if you had, you know, which is our reality today, if you have a credit card, 
and an Amazon account, you can have almost anything in the world in one or two days. Almost anything in the world. And now I hear they're offering same day free service. So it's all more almost to the point where you can hit the button on your internet and it'll pop up right in front of you. There it is. Of course, not here because we live out in the sticks, so you can't get same day service here. So. In this context, it's very hard for us to understand how James can say to us in this passage, be patient. And what's interesting is it's not a request. In the original language, in the Greek, you can tell what's a command, what's a request, what's a statement. In the original Greek, this is a command. Be patient. Now this, you know, we think it's hard for us to hear that, but it wasn't easy for James' first readers to hear that command. We know from reading the rest of the book of James that these first recipients of this letter were poor people by and large. They were oppressed by the wealthy. They were persecuted for their faith in Christ. They lived a much harder life than you and I. And these are the people to whom James commands, be patient. You can see at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 that James has very harsh words for these wealthy people who were oppressing the poor Christians, among others. They were hoarding their money. They were living in self-indulgent luxury. They were withholding wages from those who deserve to have them. Same kind of injustices that we still see today. And James says, in this context, be patient. Now, James can command that because the ability to be patient comes from their faith in Christ. He's talking to Christians. He calls them brothers. If they're brothers in Christ, that means that they have the Holy Spirit. They've been born again. They have a new nature. And what we've been learning as we've been studying the fruit of the Spirit is if you have this new nature as a gift of the Holy Spirit, as it works in you as a redeemed person, over the course of your life, you begin slowly but surely to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. The character of a person whom the Holy Spirit is transforming. The Spirit's work in us. If you're a believer today, the Holy Spirit's work in you is to make you over into the image of your God. To make your mind and your heart look like the character of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given you everything you need to pursue life and godliness. He goes on to say, So that through them these things that he has provided, the means of grace that he has given to you so that you can pursue life and godliness. It's through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is the elevated calling that you have as a child of God, is to partake of God's nature. Not to become God, but to become like God in those characteristics by which he intended for you to reflect his nature like compassion, like humility, like patience. And he goes on later in that chapter to say, this is how you make your calling and election sure, is by observing the Holy Spirit transforming you into the character of God. 
And so, back in chapter one of James, in verse 19, he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He's basing that in the description of God that we have in his Exodus 34, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, and in Psalm 86. The same statement is made over and over in the Old Testament. This is what it says. But you, Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, enduring, forbearing, long-suffering, steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, that's the God who saved us. That's the God who is transforming us into his image. So he says to us, be steadfast, be patient, be slow to anger. The fruit of the Spirit, as we've been seeing, is based in the first one in the list. If you, again, you go back to Galatians 5, the very first fruit of the Spirit that's listed there is this fruit of called love. And we said at the time that love is really the foundational fruit in the sense that all other fruit in a sense, flow out of that and reflect that one fruit of love. And it's certainly true of patience. Remember what Paul said about love in that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient and kind. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things. Love is patient. And this is where you get, begin to see the distinction between the patience that James is calling us to exhibit as born-again, blood-bought children of God from the kind of patience that the world tries to practice who doesn't know God. Because the world, when it talks about patience, the way that they talk about it, it's just appealing to the flesh, appealing to the will, saying, try harder, grit your teeth, bear it. Just do it. Be patient. Grit your teeth and bear it. That's the world's form of patience. But the New Testament teaches us that the patience that James is talking about, the patience that Paul is talking about, is rooted in love for others. It's motivated by love for others. In other words, you put up with people, you put up with circumstances, you put up with things because you love other people, because you put their needs before your own. That's what's distinctly Christ-like about the patience that James is talking about. It's being willing to suffer in this life and to endure irritations, inconveniences, provocations, and even abuses from others because you love God and you love others and you want what's best for them. Christ teaches us to love others that way to put their needs first. But patience, from a scriptural point of view, has an added element to it, which is actually has a parallel in the world's form of patience, but ours is so much better. Patience implies that you're waiting for something good. Otherwise, why be patient? Patience implies that you're waiting for something good, that you endure whatever suffering or mistreatment that you're going through because you're anticipating something good coming down the road. Why do you endure the sore muscles and the exhaustion that comes your way after you go to the Y or to wherever it is that you work out physically? Why do you endure those sore muscles and that pain and that discomfort and that tiredness? Why? 
because you anticipate looking better, feeling better, being healthier. You have a hope for the future that motivates you. Why do you go, do, are you able, why are people able to endure incredible pain after surgery in the hospital? Incredible discomfort, incredible inconvenience. Why are they willing to endure? It's because they have a hope of being healed, of being healthy in the future. James says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There's the key for the believer. That's what you live your life anticipating. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will return to earth to make all things right, to make all things perfect, to make you perfect in body and soul and to usher us into a new heavens and a new earth and a kingdom of God where there is no rebellion in you or in anyone else where all is in harmony with our creator. Three, time, or three times in these four verses, James refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then he talks about the Lord being at hand. And then he says, the judge is standing at the door. And this is something that the New Testament pounds into us over and over again that is so foreign to the way that we American Christians think, is that we are to be focused upon the second coming of Christ. We are to be focused on his return. And it's to motivate us day in and day out. We spend so little time thinking about his return. But the scriptures call us to daily contemplate his coming again, because that will be the fulfillment of our salvation. We are waiting for Jesus to finish his work of saving us. He has already saved us from the penalty of sin. He did that at the cross. When he died on the cross as the perfect God-man, he died as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. He paid the price for our sins in full. He died in our place, endured the penalty of death, but then was raised from the dead, showing that God the Father accepted his sacrifice in our place. And thereby, he got rid of the penalty of our sin once and for all. But currently, right now, as the Holy Spirit continues to work in us, he is doing away with the power of sin over us. We have been released. We are no longer slaves to sin. And we are learning to walk in obedience as we depend upon him and as the Holy Spirit works in us. And one day, when he comes back again, he will deliver us once and for all from the presence of sin completely. Sin, death, the devil will be put away once and for all. And we will be made perfect in a perfect kingdom where we will see God face to face. And at that point, Jesus will have finished the complete work of saving us. That is the hope that enables us to be patient the hope that enables us to be patient. And then what James does here in these verses is he gives us three examples of patience to encourage us. The first example he gives is that of a farmer. And the farmer shows us that we need to be patient with things that we cannot control. So much of our life 
is outside of our control. We as Americans like to think that if we just get enough technology and get enough time, get enough effort, we can control our lives. But it's a fallacy. We don't even begin to control our lives. There are so many factors that we are out of control of. How do we live in patience with the fact that we do not control our lives? Well, that's how a farmer lives. A farmer cannot live by instant gratification. I mean, can you imagine a farmer trying to say, well, you know, I'm going to plant a seed and tomorrow I'm going to eat dinner. Doesn't work that way. Farmers in Israel, you know, the language here talks about the early rains and the later rains. In Israel, they actually did their planting at this time of the year because the early rains came in late October, beginning of November. And so they wanted to make sure that they had tilled the ground and fertilized the ground and plowed the ground and had it ready for planting before the early rains hit at this time of year. And so they would plant their seed, wait for the rains to come, and then they would certainly weed and nurture and do whatever they need to do, but they had to wait for almost six months because the later rains in Israel at this time came in March, April, maybe even early May. And they needed those later rains. It was such a dry climate. They needed those later rains so that the, the seeds they had planted, the, the, the plants that had started to sprout and root would be able to grow to full harvest time. And the harvest would be in what we would call the spring of the year. And that's what James is referring to. They, they till the soil, they plant, but then they have to trust the Lord because those plants are not gonna grow if the Lord does not provide the sun, if he does not provide the rain, he's the one who provides the growth. And so James says, learn from the farmer. What the farmer teaches us is that waiting and being patient is not being inactive or passive. Farmers are some of the least inactive and least passive people I know. But, they work hard according to their calling. They do what they can do, but they totally depend upon the Lord to provide the fruit of their labor. They depend upon him. They look to him. They pray that God will do what he has promised so that they can provide the harvest. God does it in his time. God does it in his way. And rarely does God's timetable and God's way of providing fit the way that we had planned it, the way that we had anticipated, the way that we wanted it. But he always provides according to his promises. God has never broken a promise to his people. Abraham was promised a child. He was an old man, too old to bear a child. His wife was barren, too old to bear a child. God promised they would have a son, but God had them wait. And they waited, and they waited, and no son came. And they became impatient. And out of their impatience, they decided to find another way to have a son. And so Abraham went in and lied with, lay with, his, with Sarah's servant, Hagar. And they got a son, but it wasn't God's way. And it wasn't with God's blessing. Stan Gale, a friend of mine who wrote a book on the fruit of the Spirit, has this quote in the book. He says, impatience, not patience, but impatience is malware to your soul. It's malicious software to your soul. What it does is it gets into your soul and 
corrupts things and rewires things so that you respond the wrong way to the circumstances in your life. When you are impatient, you are driven by pride. Pride becomes the ultimate factor in all your decisions. It's all about me. It's about my rights being infringed. It's about my needs, about my wants. That's what impatience does. It gets you all self-centered. And you begin to get frustrated. You get angry. And you begin to complain. Small things reveal the level of impatience in our lives. If you come in and have, make an appointment with me and talk to me for an hour on a Wednesday morning, I'm going to look like one of the most patient persons you know as I listen and interact with you. Hopefully, it's going to be a good experience because I'm going to put on my best face and I'm going to be patient as I talk to you. But if you drive behind me down the street half an hour later, you might find me to be one of the more impatient people you know because the slow driver in front of me draws out my impatience. The slow purse cashier at the grocery store shows you how much impatience you deal with. The lazy coworker who makes you work more than you should have to work shows you the impatience in your life. Those stubborn and rebellious children that you're trying to raise will show you how much impatience there is in your heart. And so James says in verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers. If you don't believe that God takes a very dim view of grumbling. Go back and read the account of Israel in the wilderness. God despises our grumbling because it shows that we are impatient and our impatience shows that we are prideful and self-centered. Four things, four things that I believe that impatience or that grumbling, that grumbling and complaining reveals about your heart. Four things that grumbling and complaining reveals about your heart. First of all, you've forgotten how patient as God has been with you. You have forgotten how patient God has been with you. Second thing that grumbling and complaining reveals that you, is you are not putting the needs of others before your own. You're putting your own needs in front of those of others. The third thing that grumbling reveals is that you're not trusting in God's sovereign provision for your life. And fourthly, grumbling reveals that you are not focused upon the return of Jesus Christ as your great hope. The second example that James uses is the prophets of the Old Testament. And he holds them up before us as examples of patience while facing opposition and rejection. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Think of the lives of the prophets that you know about from the Old Testament. How they suffered because they were sent with a word from God. Hebrews 11 gives a summary of the suffering and persecution that the prophets went through. It says, they stopped the mouths of lions. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. As it says about all those people of faith in Hebrews 11, it says they desired a better country, a heavenly one. That's why they endured those horrific torturings and sufferings because of their identification with the word of God. 
It's because they were looking to that better new heavens and new earth to come. That was their hope. We don't receive revelation from God. We don't speak with the same authority that a prophet spoke, but we are given the words of the prophets and the apostles. We are given this revelation from God. It's all that we need for faith and life and godliness. And we are to speak to our friends, our neighbors, our family members, to share the word of God with them. And if we are doing that faithfully, the scriptures promise us that we will face mocking. We will face rejection. We will face persecution to one degree or another. How are we to be patient when because of our identification with Jesus Christ and his word, we face that kind of suffering? Well, we have the ultimate prophet to teach us. Jesus Christ was the word of God, according to scripture. He was God incarnate, and his words were the words of God. And he is our example. And remember what Peter said about him in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He says, speaking of our own suffering for the truth, for doing good, he says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not retaliate when he suffered, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's why Two chapters later, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says in verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, it's not just. If you're doing good, if you're proclaiming the word of God, if you're sharing your testimony with somebody, if you're trying to tell somebody what the word of God says and you suffer for it, then you don't, it is true, it's unjust, it's not fair, it's not, it's not right that you should suffer for doing good and speaking what is good and true. But you can entrust that suffering to the judge. The judge, James says, is standing at the door. He's standing just outside the courtroom. He's ready to step in to pronounce judgment. The good news is because you are a believer, because you believe that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead, you are forgiven. When you stand before him as judge, you are robed in his righteousness and your sins are forgiven. You are a child of God. You are seen as righteous. Those who don't know Christ, those who have not believed in Christ, those who are not born again, those who are lost are still under his wrath and condemnation and they will be judged and they will pay for their sin for all eternity. The fact that we know that and that is our ultimate hope enables us to endure all kinds of injustice in this world. That's what James is saying. That's what Peter is saying. Like the prophets, we can endure that injustice knowing that either God is going to pardon our enemies the same way he pardoned us when we were his enemies, or he is going to execute perfect justice. The judge of all the earth will do what is right when he comes back. 
And so we can endure. We can be patient, again, because of our hope. And patience means not retaliating. Patience means not taking vengeance. That's what Romans 12 teaches us. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What a burden taken off your shoulders that you don't have to make Everyone who wrongs you, especially in relation to your faith in Christ, you don't have to make sure that they pay for it. That's the Lord's job. You can endure. You can be patient. And beyond that, you can go much farther than that is you can pray for them. Pray for them to find grace and mercy in Jesus Christ the way you have. Love your enemies, Jesus taught us. And wait and trust in God's promise. The third example that James gives us is the example of Job. And Job, of course, is an example to us of what it means to be patient with God's plan and purpose while we suffer. Job, as we know, if we've read from chapter one all the way to the end of the book, you know that Job was attacked by Satan and that Satan received approval from God in his sovereignty to allow Satan to attack Job, to take away his property, take away his livestock, take away his sons and daughters, take away even his health. Gross tragedy that Job went through. And remember how he initially responded in faith in chapter one, verses 20 and 21. Job says, it says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a great statement of faith in the face of extraordinary, immediate suffering. That's patience and suffering. That's humbly trusting in God's grace and his will and his plan and his purpose. But if you keep reading the book of Job, you realize that he did falter. His faith weakened. He struggled with doubt. He began to complain. He began to grumble. But Job's saving grace was that he complained and grumbled to God himself. That doesn't make grumbling right, but at least he went to God with it. And there God schooled him, taught him. He had tested him, and then he taught him. And what's interesting to me about how God dealt with Job in his faltering, in his patience and his faith, how God dealt with him is that he didn't say, okay, now, Job, I want to talk, tell you the whole story about how Satan came to me one day and asked for permission to make your life miserable. He didn't say, you know, Job, you know, this is, it's going to last for this long, and then you're going to go through this, and then you're going to go through this, and then after this much time, and then I'm going to relieve all and take away all your problems. What God did is he said to Job, look at my glory. Look at what I've created. Look how big I am. Look how powerful I am. Look how sovereign I am. Look how I take care of the universe. Look at the big picture, Job. Look at who I am. See my glory. And understand all you really need to know about my purpose, which is my purpose is for good. 
That's why James concludes that section by saying, you, you who have read the whole story, you who read Job 1 as well as the end chapter of Job, you, he says, have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job needed to learn to trust the Lord even when he couldn't understand the plan and couldn't see the purpose in what he was enduring. James says to us, God has a purpose. It is good, it is merciful, it is compassionate. You need to trust him in this. Job endured, interestingly, we said patience comes from hope. Job endured because he had the same hope that you and I have. Now think about this. Job lived around the same time as Abraham, which is over 2,000 years before Christ was born. But I want to listen to you, I want to read for you so you can listen to what Job's testimony was. What was Job's hope? What enabled Job to persevere and to be patient in the midst of his tragic suffering? Listen to his hope. And this is an amazing statement to me. It sounds like it came out of the book of Romans somewhere. I mean, the, the revelation that's assumed behind this statement is incredible. It's hard to believe it was written at the same time as Abraham. This is what Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. We tend to think of those people who lived back in the early parts of the Old Testament. Yes, they lived in the shadows. Yes, they lived in a time of limited revelation. But Job's hope is the same hope that you and I have, is that the Jesus Christ who did stand on the earth, God in human flesh who stood on the earth is gonna come back and he's going to return and we will see him with not just our faith but we will see him with our eyes and we will be made perfect. We will be made perfect in body and soul along with Job. All of our suffering is according to God's plan and therefore it has a good purpose to it and we will never know all of that purpose but we can trust him because he is sovereign and he is good. That's what Peter was saying over in 2 Peter chapter three. Listen to this as he talks about the return of Christ in terms of patience. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the hope of Job. That's your hope. And just as Job had to wait 2,000 years before God stood on the earth the first time, we've had to wait 2,000 years to wait for God to stand on the earth the second time. But just as God fulfilled his promises in the past, he will fulfill his promises in the future. And that hope is what enables you to be patient. Be patient 
until the coming of the Lord. Without hope, there's no reason to be patient, but with the hope that we have, we find true patience, deep patience in this life. And so, James says, establish your hearts. That means to strengthen your hearts. How do you strengthen your hearts? Well, you use the means of grace that God has given you. Give his, he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. As we dig into the gospel, we deepen our hope. I can't give you 10 steps to, to more patience in your life. You'll find sermons like that. Somewhere down the street, somebody's preaching 10 steps to, that you can do to be more patient in life. Here, what you're gonna hear is that you're gonna find patience by putting your hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. That's where you're gonna find the patience to endure whatever it is that you're enduring. I often hear Christians facetiously say, don't pray for patience. Do you ever hear, ever hear Christians say that? Don't pray for patience. Now, they don't really mean it, but they are trying to make a point. Why do they say that? Why do, why do, they tell each, why do Christians tell each other, don't pray for patience? Because we know that there's only one way that God is going to increase your patience, and that's by making your life, to one degree or another, miserable. God is not gonna teach you patience by making you happy, healthy, and wise. God is not gonna teach you patience by making you comfortable. God is gonna teach you patience by making you endure hardship and rejection and broken relationships. But I am never gonna to say to you, don't pray for patience. I'm gonna beg you to pray for patience because I know I want what's best for you. And what you gain, when you gain the fruit of patience in your life, this work of the Holy Spirit, when you gain patience, what you have is in terms of treasure so far more valuable that any days, months, weeks, or years you may have to spend suffering to gain it. It's worth it. I saw a motivational poster once. This is what it said. Anything worthwhile takes time to build. If we had immediate success, we wouldn't build the character that we need to sustain true success. If we had immediate success, we, it, we wouldn't build the character that we need to sustain true success. Now that's written from a worldly perspective, but there's a lot of common grace in there. There's a big biblical message in there because Peter tells us that our faith and our patience is like gold that is refined by fire. And as it's refined, it becomes far more valuable. Let me close by reading to you another Old Testament passage just to show that our hope is no different than the hope of our Old Testament brothers and sisters. Listen to these three verses from Psalm 37, the very same message that James is teaching here in chapter five. This is what the psalmist says. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Let's pray. Father, we are so short-sighted in our weak faith Lord, I pray that more and more we would become fixated and focused upon 
the completion of our salvation, which will occur when Jesus Christ returns. Lord, may we be filled with that hope. That hope in and of itself is of infinite value, but the patience that it produces will enable us to endure whatever you have called us to endure in this life. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your patience with us as you gently, slowly, progressively conform us to the image of Christ. Your grace is amazing to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.